the lesser Trumps, the people who come after, but who mimic his voice or his tactics in pursuit of power are going to exist now for a while. Our grandchildren will be dealing with Trumpism uh, without Trump. That's even in some ways worse and, and scarier. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Andrew Grossman of Grossman Solutions, a political consultancy which helps progressive organizations with strategy, campaign management, and recruitment. Andrew's history with the Democratic Party is long and deep, starting with many campaigns. He was also president of Walmart Watch and has been both political director and executive director at the DSCC. Recently, Andrew has been the national platform director for the Democratic Convention in 2012, 2016, and 2020, helping bring the party together toward a common statement of values. We had a good talk about his career, his firm, and our current politics. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Andrew Grossman. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Andrew. Uh, Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Andrew Grossman. Um, I am uh, the principal at Grossman Solutions, which is a consulting firm based in Hartford uh, with an office in Washington as well. I've been working in campaigns since I was a kid. My parents ran for local office and I I knew what I was going to do when I was a college student, quit college to work for Jesse Jackson for a year. Um, worked on campaigns for uh, around the Northeast mostly for the next couple of years. Uh, worked for David Dinkins when he ran for mayor, and then went to Washington, where I was lucky enough to work at the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee. And then I ran Walmart Watch uh, before I moved back to Connecticut, where I'm from, and started Grossman Solutions. So that's about it in a nutshell. <laughs> Just to pick one of those things. You're at a very fine small college. You say you decided to to quit or just take a year off? Just take a year off. Yeah. And then what was it about Jesse Jackson that made you want to do that? That's a pretty big decision as a young man. Well, I think at that point, I was beginning a, an ideological or political journey from liking the excitement of politics uh, to becoming a little bit more progressive. And at the time when I knew I was going to take a semester off from school, my first instinct was um, in picking between Paul Simon and Jesse Jackson, who was I going to have a better year spent working with and who was more likely to last throughout the campaign. And uh, the campaign opened my eyes to so much. And I learned so much about the world really was an incredible beginning. My motive was uh, was ideological in the sense I was looking for one of the more liberal candidates. Uh, but I also wanted to be with a candidate who was going to give me a, a longer campaign. So are we talking about 83, 84 there? Is that? No, more? no, don't date me too much. 88. Eight, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So not his first Mondale Jackson uh, heart run, but the one which heart drops out uh, in 87 with the scandal. Right. And Biden didn't make it to the starting line because of scandal and so we started, it was uh, Dukakis versus Jackson. That's the Rainbow Coalition. What was it about that candidate and campaign that got you excited? And what'd you learn? You said you learned a lot. Well, he, he was remarkable. What a disciplined and smart and thoughtful person who 
had so many ideas and and had so many different goals that we're still talking about and enunciating and achieving today. So a, a kind of a, a prescient person to work for. Uh, second, the campaign, I, I, I went from being a college student from a suburban town to being with people who had been radicalized in one way or another. First in New Hampshire, where the staff was largely white, it was kind of kind of the the, the progressives, the the um, people to the left, uh, white progressives, and then as we moved on uh, to people who had been engaged in civil rights struggle and and politics in a deeper way than I could ever have imagined, as we went from state to state all the way through the June primaries, kind of the Sanders of his day, I would think, except with a racial uh, component to it. And Senator Sanders endorsed Reverend Jackson in his 1988 campaign when he was the mayor of Burlington. And it was, uh, it was uh, you know, uh, Reverend Jackson won Vermont, uh, which borders Massachusetts. And he could give a hell of a convention speech. Yeah, he, you know, he was a remarkable speaker. And I, I, I continue to work for him as an advanced person or to do different things on and off over the years. And I heard him speak hundreds of times. And, uh, and it was a remarkable discipline. Um, uh, he varied from script uh, from place to place, but always had a core to it. Sometimes I would go stretches where I heard the same speech constantly and that maybe evolved a little bit and that he tried new things out, but then he'd go a complete different way and, and have a speech that was something different was on his mind that day. And he spoke in a different way and truly remarkable. I always thought of him from, from afar as sort of this interesting mix of pragmatism and idealism. Is that how you saw him? Absolutely. Absolutely. He was a, a really a brilliant political organizer. And when you're a political organizer, you make uh, sacrifices and you also push people. That goes from everything from the way he announced his, his uh, candidacy in 1987 for the 1988 election at a pride event, at a pride march, was something that was pushing a lot of the members of his coalition to broaden their coalition and to think about addition. It was uh, both a brave thing for him to do as an organizer and also remarkably strategic. He's yeah ahead of his time in that way, I think, for sure. You kind of glossed over what sounded like your campaign years before the Senate Campaign Committee Tell me a little bit more about them. What are a few things that stick out in your mind? Well, I had great bosses. I was lucky to work for remarkable people. So in 1989, I worked for David Dinkins. I was an advanced guy. Uh, we ran a presidential level advance team for a New York mayoral election. And it like some of the people who came out of that are some of the finest uh, people I know. Um, Mayor de Blasio was uh, was a, a field guy on the campaign, sat across from the advance team. Uh, the new head of, uh, of the Center for American Progress, Patrick Gaspard, Ambassador Patrick Gaspard, was a colleague um, on the advance team, uh, as was his, uh, some, of, some of his family members who are, who are still dear to me. So we ran, it was a re really remarkable campaign. And we worked for Bill Lynch, who was a, um, if you've never heard of Bill Lynch, he was a remarkable political, amazing political organizer in New York who was ahead of his time and a true leader um, and was uh, Mayor Dinkins' campaign manager and then the deputy mayor. In 1990, I worked for Neil Rold, who ran for Senate in Maine against Bill Cohen. Neil, um, we lost 60-40 in the 1990 elections. And uh, Neil was ahead of his time, though. He ran on single-payer health care. Um, in a state that's on the border with Canada and where he made an argument with a million dollars of TV money, which was a lot in 1990 for single payer health care like the Canadian model. Uh, and he was a very special public servant, spent 25, 30 years in the main legislature and was a great progressive leader. 1991, I managed my first campaign. Uh, I managed Carrie Perry for mayor in Hartford for her reelection campaign. Mayor Perry was the first black woman mayor of a city over 100,000 people. She taught me so much. She was a deeply grounded uh, progressive and she had great style and flair. She led the city of Hartford for six years. And then after she was done being mayor, went back to doing what she did before, which was to be a social worker, maybe one of the most important people I've ever worked for. Then I kind of bounced around. I did races all over the place and did different things from in 1992 and 1993, mostly in the Northeast. I ran a house race in 1996, 
Jeff Plout and Jeff Pollack. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Brought me in on a race in 1996. Larry Lerner for Congress. We ran and lost against Bob Franks in the New Jersey 7th District in 1996. We uh, ran a great campaign. And that was really my first like big race where I was the campaign manager. And that I uh, became the chief of staff for a state senator from New Jersey, a, a really famed legislator named Ray Lesniak. Um, who uh, was also the campaign chairman for Jim McGreevy. And so I kind of went back and forth from being the state Senate chief of staff for Senator Lesniak uh, from Elizabeth to being the McGreevy uh, uh, campaign in the primary and working on the McGreevy general election as the deputy on the coordinated campaign. 1998, I ran the coordinated campaign in New York. Well, first I ran Ken Gibson for county executive in Newark in 1998 in the Democratic primary, which we won. And then I came back to New York and uh, I ran the coordinated campaign when Schumer and Spitzer got elected, Schumer to the Senate and Spitzer got elected to the AG. And then I went to DC. I became a political bureaucrat. (laughs) What do you think makes a good campaign manager? So hunger to see it all and to and to be able to and to and a want to like have your hands in making things go forward understanding pace and how to use time to uh, as and and how time works as a uh, dwindling resource in every campaign that you have and understanding how to manage time um being a calculated risk taker i can't speak enough about that like being a calculated risk taker is the single most important thing to success in this field and maybe in all fields um, you got to sometimes you you have to put yourself in a position where something will pay off and making that decision uh, puts you at risk and uh, so being a calculated risk taker as a campaign manager um, I probably am not always the best campaign manager because politicians are people. And sometimes uh, I'm not always the best manager of politicians. I think there are people who are better than me at that. And I, so I think being a good listener and trying to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes uh, really well as a people manager for a campaign manager is, is critically important. And then um, the patience to let go a little bit because you can't control everything and you have to really try to manage your best while moving so many things in a dwindling time frame. I think if you were asking entrepreneurs a similar question, you'd hear that calculated risk taker answer also in that space. And you've built some enterprises. What do you think that that applies also into sort of the for-profit realm? It does. It does. But risk takers also take many different forms. Sometimes a risk taker could be someone who's willing to come out to their family. Um, It doesn't necessarily happen to be in a business setting, right? Risk taking is something I I celebrate. Um, we, We know about it in the business realm because there's a business communications world that tells us how, you know, tells us about people and celebrates that risk taking as well. How did you land at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee? So I had a really remarkable experience working in New Jersey campaigns in the mid '90s, and I would recommend it to anyone who's coming up in the business. There's um, there's a um, a level of of honesty to the way politics works in New Jersey that I think is um, really important for people to experience, and it probably happens in some other places as well. But I think it's I think it's um, uh, it's it's a deeply honest place. Um, so. And I worked for brilliant people there. What do you mean by that level of honesty? What is it? How politicians speak? Is it like what? What, what are you referring to? It's more raw in what it is. It's a little bit. It's more open about its transactional nature. Um, it's less hidden by ideology. New Jersey has uh, a strange form of government where it's got a very strong governor and then a. Uh, and then strong county form of government. And there's this political party tradition that has been built up and it's incredibly competitive. There's enormous amount of, of money involved. New Jersey's a wealthy state. There's, uh, it's in between two gigantic cities and two metropolitan areas, two ports. And it's built up this political culture that is tough. The elections are tough and close. When I worked there, we were at the cusp of the democratic hegemony before that, the state was back and forth between Republican governors uh, and uh, and Republican legislatures. Um, I, I worked in a minority state Senate in New Jersey, and I worked for a candidate who lost by less than 1% to the incumbent Republican governor. That's what I mean by it. And then that led to the DSCC, you were saying. 
Yeah, they um, uh, Senator Torricelli became chairman of the DSCC. Uh, his chief of staff became the executive director, and they were looking for someone to come in and help them run it as the deputy executive director. Uh, and he asked New Jerseyans uh, who we should hire, and uh, people pointed him to me, which I am grateful for. People, uh, Steve D'Amico, I think probably was the person who sent them my way, and um, I'm grateful for that. What was that experience like for you? The DSCC was one of the great work experiences and teams that I had. And we had elections that we won and elections that we lost. They were different chairs. Um, we had different senates. But being on the political team at the DSCC is a wonderful job to do in Washington, D.C. It's a great professional position. So I was the deputy executive director for two years under Bob Torricelli and under Jamie Foxx, the executive director. Then in uh, the second cycle I was there under Senator Patty Murray, I was the political director and I worked for Jim Jordan, who if you haven't had him on, I highly recommend. And then the third cycle for one, just for one year, the just the first half of the 2004 cycle, I was the executive director under Senator Corzine. Um, and then I left uh, where I went to the America Coming Together, uh, where I did polling and, and focus groups and data. I don't think everybody really gets what the ds does or what a political director what is the the role there can you explain like what is the day-to-day -day, what are the big decisions what are the stresses sure i think it's um and i think it's evolved i think the committee is even better today than we were uh in so many ways the way they they i think they play a more active role in the way senate elections are run today so the the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee purpose is to help the Democratic caucus in the Senate, the senators, get more members and uh, and for the ones who are running for reelection to help them protect their seats. Um, so it covers everything from candidate recruitment to helping candidates who the, the party wants to support uh, meet donors. It helps raise money itself and do independent expenditures for television and other communications uh, for candidates in races. In the old days, when the Republicans always outraised us, uh, it equalized the, the spending between the Republicans and the Democrats. And that's really what the party's job was to do. Now, in an era where it's a little bit different and there's so much money and everybody has all the resources, it plays a key role in not only in recruitment and in funding, but again, in, in that communications role, it's even bigger than it was before. It's not filling the gap. It's helping drive campaigns um, and helping campaigns really um, uh, be communicating with voters for uh, uh, extraordinary lengths of time. Did you get to know a bunch of senators by that in that I job? I did. Yeah. I did meet some senators, yeah. And any uh, reflections on any of them that, that you can share? I was really appreciative of the fact that the senators knew us and they were thinking about politics and they understood what we, they, they paid attention to what was going on on the campaign side. And they were really supportive of the of the DSCC. So Senator Daschle, Senator Reid were just like um, just incredible. Senator Murray uh, is just such a fine person who is just dogged in her work and is powerful. The, the people in Washington state and the Democrats are, are lucky to have her. Senate offices are, are funny places. Members of the Senate get elected by their state. Uh, and, you know, the old adage is that a Senate office is like a small business. Um, and, and it really is. Uh, the, the, the way the offices work, what their interests are, are reflective of the individual members who get elected in states that might be radically different. Does it give you any insight, maybe more than the press have or average people about like why and mansion and cinema are where they are? Is that highly individual or is that something that you could sort of say they're in this category? How do you understand them right now? I think that both are complicated people. I think that it is less about their states for both of them, but for different reasons. Um, I think Senator Manchin is deeply tied to his state and understanding of it, reflective of it. Um, and uh, but Senator Cinema is at the beginning of her career um, and 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 is in a different place than Senator Manchin is. 
but that is really like the individual state politics is such a key driver for each of them. We had um, Senator Miller who uh, from Georgia, who was always on the fence. Zell. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, went full the other way and supported Bush and went on the attack. And it was really outrageous uh, in his later years. Senator Nelson, they stuck with the Democratic Party um, and uh, in Senator Nelson's case. And I think that that's important for Democrats to think about how important it is to have these these Democratic senators in these places for other reasons. Senator Manchin, they're actively negotiating. Right. Um, And he hasn't left the table. He makes pronouncements publicly. He's saying things, but he's also he's there at the table. Without him, they wouldn't have uh, the, the chairmanships. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very tricky right now. I noticed that you were platform director in three successive cycles. Can can you tell me how that came about? That seems like a role that's not well known and it's pretty important. How did you come to that? What a great opportunity. I, I really like I've had a lot of blessings over the course of my career and um being platform director three times has been special and different each time. Uh in 2012, so in um, so to some degree, this is about age and timing. All the people who I grew up in within the business uh, were in the Obama orbit, and I had lots of friends there. I did some work for them in the first term outside as a consultant on the outside to some friendly organizations. I helped them try to do some legislative work, and then when it came time for the reelection campaign for the platform committee. My my dear friend Patrick Gaspard was the executive director of the Democratic National Committee, and he asked me to do the platform. And it was uh, the re-election campaign, so the platform was really about uh, celebrating the president's successes and uh, and laying out his vision for the next four years. And then in 2016, and I, I developed a wonderful working relationship with Patrice Taylor. The Patrice Taylor is a political person who no one knows about. Uh, she's so quiet and behind the scenes, but uh, she was the head, a uh, longtime head of uh, the Democratic National Committee Delegate Selection and Party Affairs. She was a key leader in the party in a position that nobody knows about, but reached out to and talked to more Democrats around the country than virtually anyone in her job. Um, and Patrice runs that part of the convention. She runs all of the different standing committees. They're called standing committees. There's a credentials committee. There's um, the rules committee. She, um, I think, put my name in the mix first, probably in 2016. I had a very warm working relationship with a lot of the people in the Clinton campaign world. And I was now at the DSCC and I understood how to have the DSCC help Senator, or uh, at the time, First Lady Clinton get elected to the Senate. I understood both how New York worked and I understood how the DSCC worked. And I played a little role in that campaign. And so they were comfortable with me and knew me. And they also, I think um, uh, my my politics kind of bleed left personally. And so it, I think it was helpful to them that I had kind of politics that were lean towards where I thought this, that they thought the Sanders people would trust me, which they do and did. That's how 2016 worked. Um, and that was amazing. So talk a little about that. There was, there was press about it. There were, you know, there was some drama between the campaigns. I don't remember all the details, but remind me about what was going on and what was the truth. Never is the reporting correct about something like that. There's truths that you wouldn't expect either, like about the wonderful working relationship between professionals doing their jobs and uh, being honest with one another. So I think that there there's a couple of different parts of it that are important. Rarely has the platform taken an important role in what's going on in politics since the time we had broadcast TV, right? It became, the convention became something different. The platform was was the vehicle by which parties uh, circulated their beliefs uh, to voters starting back in the 1820s. I think the 1824 election was the first one, the Democratic Party platform in the 1824 election. But every now and then it becomes a place where one side of the party or another puts up a fight. Jackson in, in 88 against Dukakis. And since since the Jackson-Dukakis 88 election with the platform committee fight specifically, the party sought through rule change uh, to kind of make the platform committee a little bit harder for things to get through. 
And so the platform kind of went away because of the Jackson Dukakis experience, which some people felt harmed Dukakis. Um, uh, the platform kind of went away until I think Sanders revived it as a, a place where he wanted to lay down a fight to continue to build his base. And to be honest, I think that the Clinton campaign also thought was a okay place to have an argument, right? The platform is reflective of Hillary Clinton's and Bernie Sanders' beliefs. And it was really like a kind of an amazing experience. So there's there's a couple of steps in the process. There's the platform drafting committee, which is a 15-member committee picked by the leading presidential campaign. So Obama, Clinton, uh, Biden. In the 2016 election, the platform drafting committee, the majority of the of the committee members were appointed by the Clinton campaign. The Sanders campaign got its own uh, members and it was like five to four or six to five. And then the DNC chair kept the others for herself and nominated them herself. And so it was a really close committee. And so it was all the drama about having the committee. And it was on the Sanders side, they picked Bill McKibben. Uh, they picked Cornell West. Uh, they picked an attorney and uh, Indian rights activist named um, Deb Fisher, kind of a, a unique set of really pe- of strong people. And uh, Keith Ellison, now the attorney general in Minnesota, um, and they and the Clinton people also picked uh, remarkable leaders as well. Uh, Carol Browner, uh, Wendy Sherman, a remarkable foreign policy leader, as did the party chair. And so the platform committee became a place where there was drama because there were personalities and it was very special. My favorite moment of all platform committee meetings I've ever been involved in was that we got to pick Robert Moses, who just recently passed away, the former um, head of SNCC. He testified first in front of the platform committee in 2016. Dr. West raised his hand and asked the first question. Um, and he said, uh, what, what would you tell the young insurgents from today, uh, the activists of today? What advice would you give them? And Dr. Moses said uh, that, the, uh, that you have to earn your insurgency. What he meant by that was that you have to just keep working it and proving to people that you are sincere about what you're trying to do. Um, and you'd have to take a lot of loss in doing so, and you have to just keep going. And it was a remarkable moment. When I got to pick him to go first, um, I uh, didn't even anticipate and something I'll never forget. What was your role exactly? Do you have to moderate the sessions? What, what are you up to during when those things are happening? During the session, so in, in the so there's the platform drafting committee, then the platform committee meetings. Both um, in the drafting committee, really first is there's two writers, uh, a foreign policy writer and a domestic policy writer. In in all instances, they're picked by the the, the team that's going to win the convention, uh, right? So in the first election, uh, in, in it was Obama, the, the Obama White House picked the two writers, or the DNC picked the the writers, and they're in some ways the writers are more important than the platform director, um, and they've all been amazing, smart policy people and political people uh, in their own. The writers write a first draft, uh, working with uh, a range of different act people to, to and then using kind of past platforms to figure out whether you're building something new or if you're refreshing what's gone in the past, how you're addressing different things in the evolution of where the party stands on issues. And then uh, it comes to the committee. The first step is to comes to the drafting committee. Those 15 members get the, the platform itself and start marking it up. And as the platform director, this is really the first place where you play a role starting to open up the opportunity for those members to make suggestions and have the campaign hear where the plat- those, those people are going and where there's issues that people think are important to cover. And it's a pretty small D democratic process. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who's been on each of the three platform committees I've been on, is like the most fastidious editor you could imagine. Uh, she digs in and she comes with pages of notes each time. She was the one member who was on all three as well. So you go through an editing process and as platform director, you're you're working on that. So kind of before that, I skipped a step, you have public hearings. My job along with uh, many other people would be to figure out who we wanted to hear from, on what topics, make it work from a time perspective, get everybody there, do all of the technical detail. On that one, the, the DNC professional staff um, handles so much of that. Um, and you, the platform director uh, is gets to like really do the politics and make sure that it, it's getting it right for what the nominee is trying to do or the likely nominee is trying to do. It's a really interesting and sometimes important exercise, I guess, because because it is this public statement 
that the campaign is making about who they are and and the other side can use it as fodder in a fight or it can be used as a positive reason to vote uh, but it's not legislation it's not binding it's it's not made into law to what extent do you think people keep their perspective about what its importance is and to what extent do you think people when they are then elected and govern reference it the best possible thing if you're a campaign and this is what this is what matters is that that Jen O'Malley Dillon needed the platform to not cause a disruption for her in 2016 the Clinton campaign needed it not to be a disruption and the Sanders campaign was trying to use it uh, for an organizing platform. Um, in 2012, the Obama campaign was trying to tell a re-election story. They wanted nothing bad to happen. The best of all worlds is to have like have the platform have no impact. Um, but the Republicans have opposition researchers and there's other people who want to take advantage of where you are um, uh, in your platform to put pressure and to use leverage uh, both for electoral purposes as well as for governance purposes. And so that's where it matters. The Biden platform committee, because of COVID, um, it was a much tighter process and than, than had existed before. And I would say that Carmel Martin, who ran the platform process for the Biden campaign, each of the campaigns always has a leader too, was remarkable, powerful leader. She ran a, a really tight ship and, 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 and ran a, a process that worked for Joe Biden. Because of the Clinton and Sanders convention, one of the things, the concessions that Sanders had reached was that Sanders got more seats on different party committees. And one of the things they set up was this, these, um, these working groups around policy issues that then led to the platform. And they did it before the platform committee, which took a little bit of the air out of the tires. It couldn't use the platform. You, uh, uh, it was a little bit more dispersed. You couldn't use it as a focal point for organizing, which was brilliant on the party's part to like do it that way. They spread it out. But now if you look at what the debate right now in the party's over, inside American politics is over, it's about like what some of the things that were debated in the process. So these are that actually is playing out in real time, um, in part, I would say, because Senator Sanders um, has there's been a continuity in his work over many years. It seems like a role where you must feel right in the center of it while that's going on. Emotionally, how was that experience to be in the middle of, of American politics for a bit? I was really proud. Um, uh, I was screwed up a couple of times in the middle of it. This is high pressure and things are moving fast and people are using this, this process competitively. I had to be on. Uh, I had to recover. So exhilarating. I'm, I'm an adrenaline junkie as an advanced guy um, in particular and as a campaigner as well by, for a life of campaigning. Um, uh, I'm an adrenaline junkie. And so the platform meetings, the platform drafting committee meetings, meeting remarkable people when uh, uh, when they're going to come and testify in front of senators and House members and former governors. And Sister Simone came to speak. A great, proud feeling, like, like a, a great adrenaline rush. One of the other things you did that I'm not too familiar with is you ran Walmart Watch for a bit. When, when was that? What was that? How was that? So in, uh, in 2004, after I left the DSCC at the beginning of 2004, I went to work for Steve Rosenthal at America Coming Together. I did data and polling and research. That was my, my work. I had a phenomenal working experience with Steve and the ACT board was kind of, uh, it was Andy Stern was the, was, uh, was on the board of ACT. Gina Glantz, who at SEIU, was at SEIU and is one of the great um, uh, campaigners of the 20th century and the 21st century as well. Gina uh, was in the thick of that. And they were just beginning uh, to put the foundation together for a campaign to put pressure on Walmart to be a better corporate citizen. Walmart, it has such a remarkable uh, and powerful impact on people's lives and an outside one for any corporation. Uh, and even though it's out of the news today, that's still true. And so they wanted to put pressure on Walmart because of the pressure that Walmart was putting on so many businesses across the spectrum of American commerce. And so they hired me after ACT, after the 2004 election, they hired me to help put together Walmart Watch. And uh, I did that for about two and a half years. 
Was that effective? Did that make change? Um, I ask myself that question, you know, kind of deep in the night all the time now. Well, first, the people that I worked with, both my my, I, I, my board members were special and gave me a great opportunity. I worked with Roger Wilkins. I worked with Shelly Pingree. I worked with Judy Lickman and Andy Stern, and Gina Glantz. These are all like leaders of our country. And then my staff, because it was right after the 2000, so we had bad elections in 2002 and bad elections in 2004. And you'll remember that at the time there was Jim Messina and Paul Tews and a couple of other people started doing the social security work in 2005. There was the anti-Afghanistan and Iraq war stuff in 2005. Move on really kind of exploded and really did brilliant organizing, especially around the anti-war stuff, 2005, 2006. The Bush second midterm, um, those guys, uh, the DSCC, DCCC really like were incredibly well focused. It was a really super moment of organizing inside the progressive community. But I got the best staff right after the 2004 elections because I was the first out of the gate at some level. It just started to become newsworthy. So um, uh, Thomas Gensimer, who became the head of uh, Blue State Digital and is one of the really brilliant thinkers about digital communications, uh, he was on my team. Um, uh, Preeti Wally, who runs the New York office for uh, Bully Pulpit and is a real leader in how to measure social media impact, was on my team. Tracy Seffel, the communications director, like we had just a, a truly brilliant team of, of great political professionals. Mark Putnam did my advertising. It was a special time. Uh, so amazing at all levels. It sounds like if you're still up at night thinking about it, it's there's some recognition that a big enterprise like that is only so movable. What I think about Walmart is that they are, for all intents and purposes, a public utility. 35% of the public uses them for 70% of their of their retail and grocery. Is that still true in the day of Amazon? Yeah. yeah. And so when you think about the, um, the power and the leverage of a company that is that important, it's more like a seismograph for the for the country. And I think maybe they would say that it's a seismograph for the country. So that I think is like how Walmart is. It's an entity that's beyond the normal because of its reach into communities across the country. And Amazon now is, I think that way and has challenged Walmart and Walmart has been like, they, they tussle behind the scenes, right? From an impact standpoint, I believe that uh, the work that we did to put pressure on Walmart on wage and benefit issues in particular, also led them to position themselves as a green company. And some of the initiatives that they took as a green company have been really important um, and should be celebrated. So that's something that from an ancillary perspective was a result of our work. So I think it was well back that you formed the entity called Grossman Solutions, which I guess you've worked under that banner from mid 2000s till now. Is that right? Yeah. I, uh, so I left Walmart. I, I left Walmart Watch, created Grossman Solutions in 2007. When you created it, what was the plan, and how has it been different as time has passed? I think when I started in 2007, I wanted to do campaigns. I moved to Connecticut um, as well. I left Washington and moved to Connecticut where I grew up. My wife also grew up here. I have four kids. Um, and we, uh, moved to greener pastures than silver spring. Although I love silver spring and I opened a consultancy. Um, and I thought I would do races and some projects like Walmart watch other, maybe some labor, some labor politics. And, um, over the course of time, what I found was that I'm a campaign manager by training. I'm not a communicator. Um, and I didn't ha specialize in making ads or in polling or in one of the disciplines, one of the specialties. And the business uh, revolves around those things. And as a generalist, I found that it was not a particularly great way to make money to do races. I have continued to do campaigns kind of one a year or a couple a year, and I love it. I love like creating vote goals. Um, I love like the intellectual, the logic of, of figuring out how a campaign should be structured and uh, the campaign budget and the calendar, uh, all of those three pieces. But that's what's different more than anything else is that I don't do as many campaigns as I envisioned I would. What is the breadth of your practice? What's an ideal customer for you? What, what are the sorts of things you're looking for? 
our business is kind of bifurcated. Uh, 60% of our business, I would call campaign work. Um, today, our anchor client is the Connecticut Health Insurance Exchange. I worked for the Common Purpose Project in 2009 and 2010, which was a affiliated, friendly organization to the White House and to Senate Democrats in helping pass the Affordable Care Act. And then a couple of years later, in the launch of the Affordable Care Act, Connecticut hired me to do what they call the grassroots piece, the field piece, um, all the community outreach, the straight to consumer, door knocking, any public appearances, all of those kind of things, outward work. Uh, we do an annual conference. So, so since 2013, the Connecticut Insurance Exchange has been my anchor client. I get to take my campaign principles and put them into a delivery of healthcare realm. Currently, I'm spending most of my time on, and my my psychic energy is that um, we're doing a vaccination campaign for the state of Connecticut, targeting people of color, African American and Latino residents uh, of Connecticut, uh, and trying to give them information about how to access the vaccine and persuading them for those who need persuasion to to get the vaccine. We have a door to door canvas out in the field. We've knocked on about two hundred twenty five thousand doors over the last couple of months. We think that it's having a positive impact. The places where we're canvassing, there's a higher vaccination rate in the, than in the places we're not. And then I work for the uh, the eleven ninety nine SEIU, the the healthcare workers union for New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey, um, and we work for the carpenters union in New York. So a little bit of labor work, a real love of mine. That's our campaign side. On the, uh, we also have a search business. We uh, Grossman Solutions Search. We find political, labor, advocacy organizations. Their senior staff, everything from uh, uh, political staff, dep titles like deputy political director, deputy communications director, all the way up to CEO and executive director, the level jobs for kind of the alphabet city of progressive America, and it's been remarkable and it's unique. How do you do that search business? That's sort of one of these two-sided businesses where on the one hand, you got to find the people to place. On the other hand, you got to find the institution to place them at. Take some critical mass, I would assume. How do you work those two sides of it? Well, I've had a wonderful opportunity to work throughout my career in party politics and progressive politics. And so my reach is pretty, our, my reach is pretty deep. My colleague, Britt Kokenauer, who runs our search practice day to day, also did the same thing. She started as a, as a campaigner um, uh, and uh, went to Emily's List, was the chief of staff at Emily's List for many years. And so we both know, because of the luck we've had in our careers, we both know so many people from around the country um, and have great reach. Uh, and so that helps us with the candidate recruitment as well as the client side get, and getting clients. We're about to start a search ourselves to add a new member to our team. We, we actually feel like we want to go a little bit younger. Watch out for our search announcement. So do candidates come to you saying, I need work, or do you more like search them out? So we get hired by the organization who's trying to hire for a position. We just finished a search for the RWDSU, the union based up in New York. Um, the They were looking for a political director. So they hired us to do the search. Uh, and we built a recruitment profile. We do stakeholder interviews. We write a job description. We make sure we get it right. We then put together a recruitment list. Usually like we make 25 or 30 phone calls to push out the job description, we email out the job description to our list, which is now six or 7,000 people strong. We also put together a list from our clients. They oftentimes know the person who ends up in a job, uh, somebody who works at the client. And so we advertise it out into the world. We use LinkedIn. Job advertising has actually fallen apart. One of the disaggregating things about the internet is job placement. And then we pull people in. We re go and recruit. And that's how it works. I, like everybody else in the business, get all of people sending me notes every day saying, do you know of anybody who's looking for this or I'm looking for a job here and there? And I do a lot of that. I informally as well, I, I continue to do what we all do, which is to pass resumes on or to pass on job opportunities to other people. Um, but what we've done is taken it and made it into a business. And the reason we're good at it is because we've been in the job seekers positions because we've done this throughout our careers. We look for jobs for uh, ourselves all the time, both as a consultant, but before that as a campaigner who sometimes was working for six weeks or eight weeks or 15 weeks on a campaign. And then 
from a from a hiring perspective, we I've been an executive director, I've been a deputy executive director, I've been a political director. Britt was a chief of staff, um, and so we put ourselves in our our clients' shoes and basically act as their surrogates to do something that otherwise, to do it the right way, would take away from their day job. This whole career you've had in politics feels familiar to me. It feels like normal politics. It feels like you know, the way we talk about it, it's the battle that's been going on since long before, uh, we were kids, but there's something different going on in the country, uh, since Trump. And there's a risk to normal politics that I don't recall before. And maybe hasn't been like that since, you know, the civil war, but there's something about this guy and his unwillingness to play by the rules the stop the steal, the insurrection, the just the way he governed. It's hard to even enumerate on how many levels he's disrupting something incredibly important about the way we operate. What's your perspective on that as someone who's sort of been in the system for all these years? I, like everyone else who has been thinking about this for as long as we have, I'm a little bit flummoxed. I sometimes know that what you see on surface isn't what's happening behind the scenes. And so I feel like the level of media coverage and the way it covered some of the Trump White House work created the opportunity for him to make it even worse, like to bring it up to that level of fire that he seems to operate at. The Trumpism, which existed before Trump, but which he provided a focal point to right-wing populism or something like that. Right. He created this, this, uh, an organizing opportunity for people on a focal point and, um, that like it's, um, uh, it's bad and we have to, we're going to have to deal with it for the next generation because the lesser Trumps, the people who come after, but who mimic his voice or his tactics in pursuit of power are going to exist now for a while. Our grandchildren will be dealing with Trumpism uh, without Trump. That's even in some ways worse and, and scarier. I also think it's coming at a time of, of climate crisis, and it's coming at a time where the pressures uh, of American society because of an unjust economy uh, and uh, because of gross profit taking creates a combustible moment. And I, and I feel I, I now I'm looking back as somebody who, who couldn't have imagined being the gray haired one worried that th- these are the political fights that my children will be having. And now my job and all of our jobs um, is to help prepare those future warriors to create the country that we want. We get focused on every election and we have to. We had an emergency in 2020. We had to respond to the Trump election the way we did as a movement. What I'm interested in is is 2040. Do you know um do you know what's special about 1989? You know, think 1989. What were what were you doing in 1989? I turned 21 that summer. I was an advanced guy for David Dinkins. Yusef Hawkins got killed on the streets of New York, which created like this moment in New York that uh, was critical and, and, and predated the Black Lives Movement that is so important now. What were you doing in 1989? I was um, just out of college. I was in D.C. I was writing software for politics. But in the world, we had the Soviet Union coming apart, right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. The Berlin Wall came down. So in New York, um, so, so in 1989, the thing that's important about 1989 that I think about for our future is that more Americans were born in 1989 than in any other year. It used to be 1961. And there's a little age cohort around the 61. And there's an age cohort around 89 that are super big compared to everybody else. And the 1989 age cohort, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was born in 1989. Barack Obama was born in 1961. So give you like, that's our politics. There's more 31-year-olds or 32-year-olds, uh, people who are Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's age, than anybody else in the country. And they're going to be char- in charge of our country 20 years from now. 
when they're 52 years old or 51 years old, they're going to have kids and they're going to be involved in their schools and they're going to be running businesses and they're going to be running the government and they're going to be doing all the other things that 50 year old people do, owning homes and struggling and all of the other issues that we face. And they're going to be the biggest. So we should be planning a movement around them being in charge of our country, not doing elections every two years ad nauseum that don't move the ball forward. We're running a tactical election-based movement instead of looking at where the country can be over 20 years from now. And I think that the conservatives do that. I think that they throw 20 years at things and we don't do that. That's what we where we need to go is where's the country going to be 20 years from now when those people are 50? When they get to be in charge, when they get to push uh, the America vision that they want to for the 20 years after that. I think that might be a good note on which to ask you my exit questions, which is, have I uh, have I missed a question? Is there something that you wish I'd asked that I haven't? Um, no, you know, I, you know, you and I don't know each other, but you uh, were a remarkable innovator in the business who changed our fortunes. Um, in so many ways. And uh, I'm really excited to have gotten the opportunity to talk to you because you've played such a key role in in our successes in a way that I bet people don't really know. And I, I think I really appreciate you. Well, I also wonder in the middle of the night how much difference I ever made. Uh, certainly, I got a company going, but you know those things matter really on the very margin in a big society and one never knows in what direction even. But uh, I'm glad to have been part of the fight. Anyway, it's an honor to talk to you too. I'm, I was really intrigued to hear about, you know, about your career and about the, the platform struggles and things like that, that, that are, have been like pretty far away from me. So nice to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? Thanks very much. I appreciate the time. That was Andrew Grossman. Andrew is at GrossmanSolutions.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com if I ever fix that site and get it up to date, or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.